Hey there, if you're listening to this and you support us on Patreon, you can hear it via the Patreon page ad-free. And this week we are joined by author Aaron Osman for a classic album dissection of John Prine's 1971 debut. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We'll also hear feedback from listeners on recent episodes and bid farewell to Meatloaf. But first, let's jump into John Prine. For Sound Opinions listeners, the name Erin Osmond should be familiar. She's the music writer who joined us last to talk about Jason Molina in October. Now we're very happy to have her back to help us dissect John Prine's debut album, which is the topic of her new 33 and a third book. Listeners will also recall that we had John Prine himself on the show back in 2018, episode 651, if you want to look it up on any of our streaming platforms. Of course, there's nothing like talking directly to the artist, but uh, Aaron's book paints a vivid portrait of Prine at the very beginning of his career by interviewing John's friends, family, and colleagues. Aaron, let's start by talking about what drew you to John Prine as a subject for a book. You know, as Chicagoans, we hear the story, it's sort of this mythical thing, but also, you know, I ride really hard for the Midwest, and Prine is such an example of sort of low-key Midwest brilliance, right? So I think those two things together made me really want to um, sort of capture this moment in time and sort of convey his rise, um, which happened really quickly. So for folks who don't know, tell the story of how this uh, postman becomes one of the most respected uh, singer-songwriters. You say at one point the Mark Twain of American songwriting, and I don't think you're wrong. I don't think that's hyperbole. Yeah, I don't think it is either. Um, yeah, it's it's really remarkable. Um, you know, Prine, he started writing songs on an acoustic guitar to kind of play music with his older brother, right? So they could kind of hang out and have something to bond over. Um, he took classes at the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago to learn finger picking, right? To learn mm-hmm. finger style guitar. Um, and then it just so happened that he played an open gig at the fifth peg which um some of the teachers at the old town school owned at the time so he sort of knew the folks that owned the club and thought ah, i'll give this a shot and then eventually you know roger ebert's coming in to see him and writing about it in the sun times sometimes it's nice you know if somebody comes up to me you know and they got a problem you know and i help them with it you know or they'll help me with my problems but some people come up and they got all these problems you know, and they tell them to you for about an hour, and then they walk away laughing, and you're stuck with their problems for the rest of the day. And when that happens, all of Chicago took notice, right? Because Roger was such a respected writer at the time. And so it was um, kind of an example of the way that Chicago celebrates itself in this really um, unique and singular way that I haven't really witnessed anywhere else. I don't talk much, I'm a quiet man. Beauty and silence both run deep and I'm running like crazy while you are asleep. You got news for me. I got nothing for you. Don't pin your blues on me. Just go ahead and do whatever you wish to. And then after that, Prine's good friend, Steve Goodman, 
convinced Chris Christopherson to come see Prine at the Chicago Club, right? Like purely mm-hmm. out of his appreciation and love for his friend's gift. And then Christopherson was like, wow, this guy's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so really it was like friends helping friends, you know, elevate this guy who was kind of shy, kind of reluctant as a performer, but that the folks around him knew needed to be heard. Yeah. You know, you do a good job of building up the case for Prine uh, prior to recording this record. What kind of a person he was, uh, the the family that he had around him, uh, you know, the extended family that he was living with. Two of his grandparents were living with the with the family and all the siblings he had in the same house in Maywood. A very modest upbringing. I think the way you tell it, if John hadn't found music, there would have been a lot of issues. I think the the line that was really telling for me was his older brother, Dave, in some ways through that lifeline out to John, his younger brother, who he saw like, this guy's going to be, he's going to end up in jail. He's a lousy student, uh, <laughs> but he's got, he's got something. He's got this incredible imagination. That, that was a really telling anecdote that you developed in the book. And John always used to talk about his, his brothers with a great deal of fondness. In terms of developing that family side of the story, how did you, how did you do your research for that? Yeah, I mean, I was lucky I was able to speak to two of Prine's brothers, to Billy and Dave, who are both still living, alive and kicking. Dave actually still lives in the mm-hmm. Chicago suburbs. Um, so they were really helpful, really open with me, really enthusiastic about the project. Um, so that was invaluable. They connected me with extended members of their family who live in Kentucky, right? So those family members sort of talked about the importance of that landscape to the Prine family writ large. From there, I was able to just sort of piece together this puzzle because I have a deep personal connection to the idea of Kentucky as it relates to the Midwest, because my family um, is in the same layout, right? Like my dad's family is all from Kentucky and I grew up making those sojourns. And I understand how that kind of old time Baptist religion makes its way into these Midwest corners um, and how that sort of um, idea really ties families together right? is sort of acts like the glue, right? Um, Whether you're invested in it or not. So I really saw a lot of myself in that. And I feel like hopefully, even though this is a journalistic work and I wanted to maintain um, that sort of journalistic remove, I hope also that sort of passion um, and familiarity and intimacy with those um, family units kind of comes through. And I think that's how I was able to do it. Yeah, that, that song Paradise really talks a lot about, I mean, every song comes from someplace, something that he experienced, and he was able to universalize it in a way. Uh, but that song Paradise really talks about those roots, right? Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize that it's not a parable, right? It's taken straight from the headlines in the local papers. Um, it's actually the true devastating account of how industrial mining destroyed his family's homeland. And there's a backwards old town that's often remembered so many times that my memories are worn. And daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County? Down by the Green River, where paradise lay. Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away. And I, I feel that, you know, I, I understand. You know, we underestimate these parts of the middle of the country um, and how these stories need to be told. I think that's why that's such a powerful song and why, like, even today, people will sort of replace paradise with their own tale, right, (laughs) of of having Mm -hmm. reaped by industrialization. And I think that's um, why it was so effective. At the same time, uh, Aaron, that you chart uh, rural America, 
you bring the streets of Chicago in the era where Brian is coming up to life. And he was a postman and, and he was a city guy. You know, there's a great story about the album cover. It's John Prine sitting on a pile of hay. And from the beginning, you know, the record industry really didn't know what to do with this guy. And uh, Prine told uh, my friend and colleague Lloyd Sachs, you know, they could have had me on a bus or something. Would have, would have been more true to John Prine's life, you know. Uh, he said he'd never sat on a bale of hay before. <laughs> but he said they must have seen the inner hick in me. You know, Paradise, uh, and the way you write about it, you, you did see the inner hick in John. What did you also see of Chicago through his eyes? Yeah, I think um, just sort of like the everyday imagery that can, he conveys with such poetic clarity, right? Like, he wasn't really ever trying to pull one over on the listener, right? Like, there wasn't this sense of like a poet jester, like Dylan-esque thing kind of happening with Brian. I mean, he was just conveying... Um, the people and the scenes from his day-to-day life. Um, and I think that's really important because those people and scenes aren't illuminated in song. They're not celebrated probably the way that they should be. And so, so yeah, I mean, I, I saw this guy walking around the city, walking around the suburbs um, in the classrooms at OTS, um, just sort of recording um, in his head and then conveying that later. You know, it's a really simple existence that he was able to elevate um, in this poetic but accessible way that I think really appeals to any type of listener, right? That, that was kind of John's whole thing. And I think it's a very Chicago thing and a very Midwestern thing where he kind of wanted to invite everyone in, right? He didn't want to alienate anyone. He didn't think he was better than anyone, um, anything like that. He was a very welcoming presence, I think, in the way that he lived and the way that he worked. Um, and to me, that is so Chicago. Well, there's a lot of empathy, too. I mean, those songs, Donald and Lydia, um, you know, Sam Stone, uh, Angel from Montgomery, every one of them is about somebody who feels left out, who doesn't feel like they belong to anything anymore. They're just out there on their own. And they're not the prettiest people. They're not the richest people. They're not the most connected people. They're just getting by day by day. Where did that empathy come from? I, th- I think it's a couple of things. Um, one, um, as you pointed out, John was raised at least for a while in a multi-generational household. He grew up with his paternal grandparents, uh, went to church with them, spent a lot of time with them, right? Um, and then also his extended kin in Kentucky. A lot of those folks were older, multi-generational, um, different walks of life. And so I think that's a part of it. I think the other thing is that I think John was just really interested in people. I think he just really liked people. That doesn't mean he was an outgoing guy or really wanted to center himself in social situations, but I think he really just liked to observe all the different kinds of people that he was growing up around. Because when we think about the Western suburbs, um, that was a truly integrated working class area, right? So he was growing up with Black people, with Latinx people, with older people, younger people, all these folks around him, I think was really fascinating to him, um, both on a human level, but also as a character study, right? I think from an early age, he was interested in reading like Steinbeck and he loved watching films. And so I think he was really adept at the study of humanity through the lens of a character. And he talks a lot about how like he was terrible in school, but he excelled at writing dialogue. You know, and so I think that's Mm. one of the few things that interested him, right? Was like imagining the thoughts and the lives of these everyday people around him. There's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose. Little pitchers have big ears, don't stop to count the years. 
Sweet songs never last too long on broken radios. It's a very Nelson Algren kind of approach. Yeah, again, Chicago. Yeah. Again, Chicago. Yeah. Tell us about the recording of, of this uh, debut album, Aaron. Uh, I'd read a quote from one of the percussionists uh, who played on the record who said uh, when he first heard Prine, he thought it was going to be like trying to milk a dog to get this on record. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. Which just indicates that he was the right guy to play with Prine. Yeah. So, I mean, really, everything happened so quickly with this first album, right? The discovery, the deal. And um, Atlantic Records sent him to Memphis to work in American Sound Studio. And I suspect it's because they had just done Dusty in Memphis there. Um, and that was a very successful album. And it was sort of placing someone who worked outside the confines of the South in the South with these incredible players, the Memphis boys, right? They're like tantamount to the Wrecking Crew, right? They're like Memphis version of the Wrecking Crew. Prime was an experiment. It was their first folk singer-songwriter kind of signing on Atlantic. Atlantic was an R&B and soul label. And so they were like, okay, well, let's let's try this out. We hear a little bit of the country in this guy, so let's put him here. But the Memphis Boys had never really played on a folk record, right? They were really driven by the spirit of the groove and the intuitive playing of the groove around um, these big belter kind of singers. And so um, I think they weren't sure what they were going to do. The producer, Arif Mardrin, had never produced a folk album before. Mm. So I don't think he was quite mm. sure what to do. Um, and so the whole thing was just this wild experiment that I think turned out really well, given the circumstances, right? Like Arif knew to bring in Leo LeBlanc, the pedal steel player, because he was like, well, that's a mark of country music. So, OK, let's fold that in. Um, and then the Memphis Boys, at a certain point, just really took note of the lyrics, like, I think they they were right and just really observing and listening to the lyrics closely and knowing that that's what these songs were really about, right? And that's what they need to elevate. And then, so that's why we hear these little flourishes, like the funeral organ um, on Sam Stone and those kind of touches that I think was a product of their intuition, but also them making a pivot in service of this album. Yeah. You kind of pinpoint that specific moment where they're midway through the session and one of the musicians said, let's listen to this record that we're recording. Let's go, let's go back and listen to what we've done. And it was the first time so, some of them had noticed those lyrics. And suddenly they had new respect for this guy that they're recording with. It wasn't just some kind of joke guy who can't sing from the Midwest that we've never heard of. And, and they, they, they had new respect for John Prine. That was a really, it seems like that was a really telling moment when they, when they, they knew that we had something special here on that moment, right? Yeah, definitely. It was, it was, I believe the guitarist, uh, Reggie Young, he kind of, they had gone out to dinner after one of the days working in the studio. He was like, you know, guys, like, I th really think you need to spend some time with these words, right? He was kind of mm. like the champion of Prine among the group. And then they took note, right? Obviously, they respected Reggie. And so I think from then on, yeah, there was a turning point or they realized that, like, this was an important work. This was, um, and it was a singular work, too. Um, and it sort of remains that to this day, I've never heard a record like the self-titled record anywhere else. Um, so yeah, it was just sort of this magical thing that happened. Let us know if you agree about John Prine's debut album being one of the great debut albums of all time. Is it a singular accomplishment? Let us know in our Facebook group or in our Patreon community. Or leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. 
so we can play it on the show. Coming up, we'll go deeper into the recording of the album, and later we'll hear listener feedback. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. And we are back. We're doing a classic album dissection of Postman Turned Troubadour, John Prine's 1971 debut. You know, in the more than 50 years since this record came out, it has dug itself deep into the lives of Prine's fans. I've been watching the show American Rust, and um, Spanish Pipe Dream comes on. Oh, nice. And this isolated moment with Jeff Daniels. <laughs> <Nice>. and, <laughs> and, he, and he sings the line, eat a lot of peaches, out loud to himself. You know, it's kind of like, I'm going through this incredibly difficult time right now in my life, and I'm trying to deal with it, and who do I reach for? I could put on that John Prine record. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to help me through this moment. That's what that record seems to have. It, you're right. I think it does stand outside of it, even in the whole. F- he was coming up with the whole singer songwriter scene, mm-hmm. and he didn't sound like any of the other people out there. You know, he didn't look like him. He didn't sound like him. Totally unique. And then Arif Mardin to produce. I'm, I'm going. This nothing about this was right. You know, it wasn't. It didn't fit in with anything. Here's this remarkable thing. Uh, what do you attribute that to? Because the industry is just a brutal, brutal place. How did that record manage to sort of gain this life beyond that era? It was a slow build, you know. I mean, and Prime didn't, you know, up and move to New York or L.A. after the record came out. He stayed in Chicago and worked the clubs, right? Like he, yeah. I don't think he he thought much of it at the time. Um, I think he was just kind of like, well, I mean, this happened and, and that's great, but I'm going to keep working at the Earl of Old Town. You know, I think it was folks obviously like Bonnie Raitt covering some of the songs on Streetlights. Make me an angel that flies from Montgomery. Make me a poster of an old rodeo. Just give me one thing that I can hold. was a lot of peer recognition that I think think, um, resulted in this slow, gradual build. But, you know, over time, when we have folks like Dylan singing his praises, um, Bonnie Raitt, folks covering his songs like John Denver, right? Like all these kind of more known (laughs) entities, right? America will take notice because if America's heroes love this, then Americans should love this as well, right? And I think that's why it's so popular today, because we don't hear of a modern songwriter, right, who doesn't love John Prine. And I think that's why Prine and this album specifically will always be on the lips of music culture, um, because he is one of the greats. And, you know, so many people try to do what he did, try to write like he did, but no one really gets Mm. close. Um, And so I think there's always the striving to the Prine brilliance um, that will happen, uh, I think, in perpetuity, right? Um, but yeah, it was just uh, this perfect melding of like Memphis, country music, Chicago folk music, friendship, belief in friendship that just resulted in this really singular work. Um, and and by the way, all of those songs, not all of them, but most of the songs are, you know, accepted in the American songbook as like standards today, yeah. which is remarkable, too. It's basically a greatest hits album, which like yeah. how often does that happen? Never. That's you true. Know? <laughs> 
as a debut. Well, it takes all those years walking around uh, delivering mail, playing these songs in your head, as John told us uh, when we were lucky enough to have him on the show. Let's talk about that writing. Um, You know, Sam Stone, uh, one of the songs that people always point to, uh, I know about this troubled uh, vet, you know, uh, struggling with drug addiction. But Prine uh, could have gone over the top and been more obvious in a Bruce Springsteen way. Uh, And he isn't. In fact, he never mentions the word Vietnam Mm -hmm. in that song. The, The guy is just back from the conflict. Sam Stone came home to his wife and family after serving in the conflict overseas and the time that he served had shattered all his nerves and left a little shrapnel in his knee but the morphine I think that comes from Prime not wanting to alienate anyone. He was kind of like empathetic in that way, but I also think smart strategically, right? Because he Mm. he didn't want anyone to feel left out of the conversation, but yet he wanted to write what he wanted to write. And so that song most definitely stems from his dissatisfaction um, with his time in the service, right? Like he served two years in the army in Germany doing nothing. Um, And then his buddies came back from Vietnam and weren't cared for, right? Um, lost their minds, started using drugs. And so I think, you know, it's a composite of this sort of fruitlessness that he felt or sense of futility around war and service. And then also what he observed in his friends and just kind of like the broader treatment of veterans. Um, But you're right. Like um, John's older brother, Dave, talks about how John was political at that time. Like they grew up in a family of like Roosevelt Democrats, right? Like they were very committed but Prine was more subtle about it. Um, mm. And I think it's A, maybe he didn't want to draw a lot of attention to himself, but B, I think it's that feeling of like empathy and wanting everyone to feel like they can participate. Um, well, and it, it lends a timelessness, doesn't it? Because Sam Stone, uh, you know, absent the uh, reference to the hole in the arm, right, where all daddy's money goes, uh, could also be a returning uh, veteran from uh, Afghanistan or either Iraq conflict, um, you know, strung out on opioids. You know, it, it's that song is as timely today as it was when he wrote it uh, in the 70s. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, it's hard to imagine that like a 19, 20 year old guy would know that at the time. Right. But, but maybe, maybe like, maybe he was thinking strategically. Maybe he was thinking like, you know, I want this to apply to anyone at any time. I mean, who, who knows, but it has that effect. Certainly. Yeah. You know, the other thing I remember here in angel from Montgomery, you know, I came to Brian, I was too young when that record came out to appreciate it or even know it existed. But I finally, you know, once you discover Dylan, then you discover other people um, that Dylan talks about, right? And Dylan used to talk about Prine a lot as a person he respected. That angel from Montgomery, I heard, heard that song. And I go, wait a minute, he's, he's talking, he's the woman. He's, he's, the narrator is the woman. He's, it's a man singing, but it's, he, he's singing in this woman's voice. And I'm like, can you do that? Is it okay <laughs> to do that in a song? I, like, it blew my mind. When I was a young girl Well, I had me a cowboy He weren't much to look at Just a free rambling man But that was a long time And no matter how I tried The 
years just flow by like a broken down dam. It was so powerful in, in, in many ways. And how does that song resonate with you, Aaron? Because some people see it as a feminist anthem. Some people, I don't think anybody doesn't like the song. It's been covered countless times. But what it is about the song that speaks to you? Yeah, I think I think you're right in everything you said, um, Greg. And um, I, I agree, you know, it was really remarkable, especially considering how young Prine was when he wrote that song. I mean, he was like 20 years old. Um, so so who even thinks to do that? Um, but but yeah, I mean, for me, I love the fact and I think that this is kind of a signifier of Prine's implicit feminism um, that he allows this woman to speak for herself right? It's not him as a man narrating her from like a third party perspective, right? He's really crawling inside of her and sort of exploring her empathetically and conveying the depths of her dissatisfaction um, in a really convincing way. Um, And I think, you know, that's really important because A, um, you know, he was exploring this realm that maybe many men weren't willing to explore at the time. But again, he's illuminating um, a sect of society that isn't often um, covered or celebrated too. And I think that's important. So that combination of those things um, made it really stand out to me as one of the great songs in the American songbook, right? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. It, it, you know, a couple of thoughts, like, you know, what could have inspired him to, to do that? I think he must have had great parents. His mother must have been incredible. But also just, were there, was there a precedent for that in, in a song that he may have heard that, you know, hey, that's, that's something I could do? Because I, I think it's a pretty daring move. I mean, I just, I just do. Do you have any sense of why that, how that occurred? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it comes from a couple of things. Um, one is, I think you're right, he had a great respect for the women in his family. Um, his mom, you know, basically raised him. Um, and he had a lot of respect for her. He had a lot of respect um, for his extended family in Kentucky. A lot of um, uh, older and younger women who were basically running farms, you know, making making their own clothes out of flour sacks and and raising their own hogs and vegetables. And I think he saw a lot of strength and power in these female figures in his life. Um, and I think the other thing is, um, you know, he was constantly just writing down ideas and the story the story that I love. Um, about this song is that he actually workshopped it to the Holstein brothers, to Ed and Fred, um, who were local songwriters um, on the Chicago circuit at the time. Um, and and Ed had asked Prime, like, do you have any lyrics? Maybe we can come up with a co-write. He was like, well, I have this line. I am an old woman. And Ed was like, uh, I, you know, I... <laughs> He didn't hear it either. <laughs> Don't know where yeah. you're going there, John. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, do you have anything more like there's a hole in daddy's arm? You know, like, yeah, man. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, Prime probably took notice of that and was like, well, you know, I'm going to do something that maybe nobody else would do. Right. Like, I think he saw that reaction and maybe fueled him to kind of make something unusual or make something less obvious. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it worked to really brilliant effect. How the hell can a person Go to work in the morning and come home in the evening and have nothing to say. I was also startled to find, I, I just assumed that Illegal Smile was about pot, smoking pot. And your book kind of says, well, no, that's not really what he was writing about. He was happy to think that people thought that way about the song, but it didn't seem like that was the reason he wrote it. It's hard to really know, um, but Prine, again, he was very 
smart and strategic in this way where he was like, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to alienate anyone. So, uh, you know, I wrote it about me and my awkward tendency to laugh and smile in the worst situations, right? Like that was his kind of line on the song. Um, but for me as a journalist and someone sort of interrogating this time in his life, it is impossible to believe that um, it couldn't have been about, you know, smoking weed because, <laughs> you know, you guys know Old Town at the time was like the hub of head shops and hippies, right? It's yeah, like yeah, where yeah. all of Bohemia hung out. So he was around that culture. Even if he wasn't doing it, he observed other folks doing it and got a kick out of it, right? Like it may just be as simple as that. Because, I mean, he was a funny guy. Brian was hilarious. And that's, I think, another mm-hmm. mark of his songs, you know, amid all this kind of heaviosity with Sam Stone and Angel from Montgomery, like he wanted to inject um, some lighter material, um, a little humor. Ah, but fortunately, I have the key to escape reality. And you may see me tonight with an illegal smile. It don't cost very much, but it lasts a long while. Won't you please tell the man I didn't kill anyone? No, I'm just trying to have me some fun. Well, Spanish pipe dream as well, you know. So he's around this uh, this halcyon hippie heyday, uh, but he's mighty skeptical of it. You know, the whole commune utopia, <laughs> back to the land, hippies, free love thing, and that's what he's kind of taken on in Spanish pipe dream. No, yes, and um, his younger brother Billy had gotten really swept up in the hippie movement. Um, he had the long hair, and Billy would tell his family, oh, I'm going to go move to California, live on a commune. And so I think Prine is satirizing his brother a little bit there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she gave me a peck on the back of my neck. And these are the words she spoke. Blow up your TV. Throw away your paper. Go to the country. Build you a home. But Prine definitely embodied more of like the streetwise everyman. Like when he was a kid growing up in Maywood, he embodied like the greaser look when everyone was growing their hair out long. I think he felt more connected to kind of like the pedestrian kind of a guy yeah. rather than there was there was some punk rocker in john prine there absolutely was yeah yeah you know you talk about the whole folk scene developing in chicago around that time prine coming along at a time when you know he probably would have been what second third generation of this new iteration of folk but john has always seemed to have marched ever ever since then you know, he got signed to this big label deal and Atlantic didn't do him any favors, I don't think, right? I mean, it wasn't like uh, they, they knew what to do with this guy. I mean, they put him on a freaking b- bale of hay on his own yeah. album cover. <laughs> um, but here he is now now revered. I don't think John ever veered from the, the guy he envisioned himself as in that first album. I mean, he's been that guy for, you know, the subsequent decades, right? I mean, it's pretty much that John Prine is the John Prine we know today, right? Yeah, he he wasn't interested in glamour and celebrity, I don't think, right? Um like yeah. th- this this didn't make it into the book, but um I you know, I talked to just some regular Chicagoans who had encountered Prine in that time and um a couple of them told a story about how they saw Prine 
pick up his aunt in a limo in the Western suburbs to drive her to his show. Um, and I just love that. Like, I think that's like the extent of Prine's glamour, right? Like I'm a Midwestern guy (laughs) who's, who's come into some money and I'm going to pick my aunt up in a limo. Right. And that's, that's kind of what he did. He, he bought some Cadillacs, um, you know, cause he was a car guy and that was kind of it. And I love that. I love that authenticity, you know, and I think they, that's why folks in Nashville felt like they knew him because they would see him shooting pool down the street. You know, mm-hmm. um, that was just he was content to live that life. He didn't need more than that. And I think that's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Do you recall, Greg, when we had him into the studio? Yeah. Spent a great afternoon with him. He wanted to go, Aaron, to a uh, an Italian restaurant. He didn't want to go to one of these fancy Italian. He wanted white tablecloth, red sauce, old school. So I sent him to Sabatino's up here on the northwest side, right, where the waiters were all 70 years old in <laughs> tuxedos. And there was a 75-year-old woman playing the piano up. John thought it was the best meal of his life. I got an email from from his wife, his manager, afterwards saying, oh, thank you. Thank you for sending us to Sabatino's, <laughs> which is now gone, uh, unfortunately. But... Uh, you know, I mean, that, that's John Prine. Give me give me a white tablecloth that I can spill red sauce on. <laughs> that's perfect for him because he liked observing people in their natural environments, right? Like he didn't like a lot of accoutrement yeah. or <laughs> a, lot of, right, right. a lot of accessorizing, right? That's perfect for him. You talk about Prine in the Chicago tradition. We've been talking a lot about that. Ch- Prine becomes a Chicago emblem like Nelson Algren, Roger Ebert, Studs Terkel. Gwendolyn Brooks, Studs Terkel, Carl Sandburg. Wow. That's like a that's a huge compliment. I'm sure you thought about that one before you wrote that down. I mean, that was serious contemplation went into that one. What makes you think he I'm not arguing with you, but I'm curious about your 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 thought process in in putting him in that pantheon. Yeah, I mean, I think he just carries on that tradition of like this low-key sort of plain-spoken brilliance, right? Like when we think about these great Chicago writers, there wasn't a lot of sort of accessorizing. There wasn't this pretension, right? Um, All of these people just sort of cut straight to our hearts and to our guts and to our souls. And I think Prine carries on that tradition in this very maybe obvious way, but maybe not so obvious, right? Um, and I think when we think of all of these writers, they kind of have that common thread. You know that old trees just grow stronger And old rivers grow wilder every day Old people just grow lonesome Waiting for someone to say Hello in that So to me, and I argue this in the book, um, he is a part of that tradition, even if we don't think about him that way. And I hope it's I hope it's a convincing argument because I really I really believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I believe it, too. I think uh, I think it's great. You got to keep writing books so we can keep having you. on. <laughs> Thank you. It's always yeah. fun to have Aaron Osmond on Sound Opinions. I, I really appreciate um, the two of you having me on and, and your support. Um, it means a lot. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Aaron. That's it for our conversation with Aaron Osman. Coming up, we'll share some artist prying influence and some of our favorite tracks. Then we'll hear some of your recent voicemails and say goodbye to Meatloaf. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Well, digesting, Reader's Digest. 
And we're back. We've been talking about John Prine's debut album today, but now we want to broaden it out to look at the effects he had on the music world beyond his debut album. Greg, uh, Prine was obviously hugely influential. There are no fewer than two great uh, John Prine tribute albums, Broken Hearts and Dirty Windows, Songs of John Prine on Oh Boy Records. And wow, just look at the roster mm-hmm. of people eager to cover his music. Bon Iver, uh, Justin Towns Earl, uh, Sturgill Simpson, The Drive-By Truckers, uh, Amanda Shires, Brandy Carlisle, uh, it, it, you know, Bonnie Raitt. It, it truly is impressive. Those all are more or less artists from the roots rock, alt, uh, country end of things, whatever, however you want to trivialize it. But he spoke to people who were outsiders and who enjoyed humor, period. I, I raved about the Viagra Boys cover with Amy Taylor of, of Amal and the Sniffers <laughs> of In Spite of Ourselves, uh, right? In spite of ourselves, we'll end up sitting on a rainbow. I mean, who would think that two of the snottiest punk bands would be loving John Prine in 2021? Yeah, exactly, Jim. Uh, you know, I think his influence uh, continued to expand, especially uh, in the latter half of his career. Um, you know, there was a period there in the 80s where pe- a lot of people just sort of forgot about John Prine. And then yeah. slowly but surely got his own label together, started putting out records, started touring more regularly. Uh, I think in many ways, uh, more people appreciated John Prine on the day of his death, and then maybe even back in the day when that debut album came out and blew everybody's mind. Yeah, yeah. You, know? Um, you know, and I'm thinking about the artists he influenced. Iris Dement has always been a, a big champion of Prine's music, and I remember meeting her in the early 90s, and she was just the sweetest, most down-to-earth, you know, lady you could possibly meet. And Prine got her to do a bunch of randy, dirty <laughs> duets yeah, yeah, yeah. On, uh, on one of his albums in 1999, In Spite of Ourselves. You know, they, they, they covered a bunch of country songs, and then uh, uh, Prine wrote one original for In Spite of Ourselves. So it was basically playing off that George Jones, Tammy Wynette dynamic, and he had Ira singing these duets with him about, you know, couples, you know, cheating on each other, yeah. and, you know, just kind of these very... He said, I just love to hear... The, the voice you would least expect to, to hear singing those kind of lyrics, sing those lyrics. Well, and you he know, said Iris was the choice. For angelic that. is an overused <laughs> adjective, but truly fits Iris DeMint. Well, Iris was, uh, you know, she grew up in a very heavily Pentecostal household. She was the 14th of 14 kids in that household, born in Arkansas, but ended up in LA with her family and, you know, steeped in these Pentecostal hymns. But when she put out her debut album in in, uh, 92, Infamous Angel, she was questioning all of that. And that's what I really loved about uh, Iris, is that she was kind of had this questioning attitude towards Mm. spirituality and the existence of God, and at the same time, a deep reverence for the music she grew up with, country, folk, bluegrass, a hint of those Pentecostal hymns. She brought it all together in, in that track, Let the Mystery Be, the first song in that first album that she put out. Everybody is worrying about where they're gonna go when the whole thing's done. But no one knows for certain, and so it's all the same to me. I think I'll just 
And this whole idea of taking these existential questions, does God exist? What am I on this planet for? You know, mm-hmm. uh, this metaphysical kind of questions, putting it in plain spoken everyday language that anybody could understand. You know, yeah. it's just kind of like this whole idea, like you'd sit around talking with your mom at the kitchen table about something, you know, and, and putting it in a song. And that is a quality that John Prine always had. He would talk about these surreal, huge questions, but put them in these really down-to-earth terms well, that everybody know, could relate this to. This is the Chicago literary tradition. Nelson Algren, Studs right. Terkel, Mike Royko, your former colleague. Yeah, surrealism mixed with spirituality. That, to me, was a lot of what John Prine was about. A lot of humor. Mm -hmm. in it as well. Mm -hmm. So when you hear Iris Dement's Let the Mystery Be, I'm going, okay, this is kind of ties in with a lot of John Prine's themes uh, that he was talking about, because he was trying to answer those same questions in his songs. And when I think of uh, the quintessential John Prine song about God and spirituality, I think of Jesus, the missing years. You know, (laughs) only John Prine would think about a song like, what happened to Jesus between the ages of 12 and 30? I think I'll write a song about that, because nobody talks about those years in the Bible. The missing years. He's going to fill in the blanks for you. It is a hilarious song. And at the same time, it is also incredibly moving, Mm -hmm. because he's talking, you know, he's bringing us up to, you know, why did Jesus die, right? And, you know, it's not like he's preaching But he's sort of, you know, kind of wrestling and ruminating about these issues in a very accessible way. And I think uh, Iris DeMent got that, and John Prine uh, obviously embodied that throughout his career. He discovered the Beatles. And he recorded with the Stones. Once he even opened up a three-way package for old George Jones. Charlie bought the popcorn. Billy bought a car Someone almost bought the farm But they didn't go that far You're absolutely right, uh, Greg, and I will underscore. You You advise listeners to go back to the archive to episode 651 when we sat with John Prine in the spring of 2018. He was uh, touring behind his last album, uh, The Tree of Forgiveness. What's the tree of forgiveness? He tells us in a song on the album, uh, I'm going to open up a nightclub called the tree of <laughs> forgiveness and forgive everybody ever done me any harm. You know, and, and he was a character of the nightclub. You know, it's hard to picture John Prine <laughs> as anything other than the guy at the end of the bar right. telling great stories, fascinating the entire crowd at, at the bar. When I listen back to the song, When I Get to Heaven, which gave the tree of forgiveness its name, you know, what did John Prine want to do when he died. We didn't know at that time that he'd only be on this earth two years longer. Mm-hmm. He wanted to go to heaven. He wanted to be able to drink again. Something mm-hmm. he'd given up to save his life. He was going to order a vodka and right. a ginger ale. He was going to smoke a cigarette, something he had to give up in his life, that was nine miles long. And he was going to form a rock and roll band. <laughs> Ain't the afterlife grand, mm-hmm. he said. That was that was everything he wanted. And you know, those all sound like really good things to me. Yeah, exactly. And then I'm going to get it. Cocktail, vodka, and ginger ale. Yeah, I'm gonna smoke a cigarette that's nine miles long. I'm gonna kiss that pretty girl on the tilt of the world. Cause this old man is going to town. What is your all-time favorite John Prine song? Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, so we can play it on the show, like these messages from the past few weeks. 
New messages. Hey guys, Joe calling from Southern Oregon. I'm a baker here and we're listening to music all the time. Love your show. So appreciate what you guys do. Your little uh, bit on the throwing muses was really cool to hear. I got into the throwing muses when they came out with the real Ramona. It was this magical combination of incredible songwriting and brilliant execution. So beautiful. And I was sad when Tanya Donnelly left the band, but I've loved The Real Ramona as like my favorite Throwing Muses album ever since. Thanks so much for covering that great band. I love you guys. Hey guys, Connor calling from Lawrence, Kansas. Love the show. Highly recommend a guy named Neil Francis out of Chicago. Great combination of funk, blues, and soul. Uh, his album In Plain Sight came out in early November. Give it a whirl. Thanks, guys. Problems that you have are the ones on your mind. And you can't stop the rain. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Josh calling from Los Angeles, and I did not think I could love Amy Mann any more than I already do, but wow, that episode where you had her talk about five albums she really loves just made me love her all the more. She was just so insightful and so uh, passionate about the albums that really helped shape her career. That's a great segment. I hope you I hope you keep doing it. I'd love to hear more of that from from uh, other of your interview guests. Thanks for doing that, and I'm looking forward to more. My album of the year would have to be "Death of the Cheerleader" by Pom Pom Squad, produced by Sarah Tudson of Illuminati Hotties. The album has like this quiet, angsty confidence about it that I can't get enough of. No more messages. Greg, I do love hearing from our listeners. I do too, Jim. And, uh, you know, nothing better than uh, our listener calls except... For you talking about one of your favorite artists of all time. We never censor each other. You, in a rare move, said, please don't use meatloaf to diss Springsteen again. (laughs) Um, What I meant when I ever said that is I think if you were going to make a perfect rock and roll teen angst sex mini opera from the perspective of the frustrated adolescent boy as there had been so many great specter wall of sound girl group productions you could do no better than bat out of hell granted it comes out in 77 i am an impressionable Mm. 13 years old but i'm gonna say something else controversial about meatloaf to pay tribute to marvin lee a day dead at the age of 74 maybe he said he lied all the time about his age they think he was 74 i think i I didn't see the difference between bad out of hell and those first ramones albums Mm. they're coming out at the same time bad out of hell was a cartoon 
It was intentionally a cartoon. It starts with the cartoon album cover. It's Broadway schmaltz by Jim Steinman. But it's <laughs> delivered with deep conviction by Meatloaf, who came not from the rock world, but the theater world. We all know he was Eddie in Rocky Horror Picture Show. He toured with National Lampoon's Touring Review. He did a lot of bad Broadway plays, right? <laughs> so he brings a certain Broadway schmaltz to these mini teen operas about being essentially what I was, a frustrated 13-year-old boy. Mm -hmm. I think it holds up in the sense of it being a cartoon. It is one of the best-selling albums of all time. Just like uh, Meatloaf lied, the record industry lies. I, I've seen it. I've seen it claim that it sold a hundred million albums. I think the more realistic, according to the BBC and NPR number today, is about forty million copies of Bad Out of Hell sold. I think it is a perfect rock album, and I think Meatloaf never did anything else as good. The two sequels in 1993 and 2006 are just dreadful. <laughs> you know, the Broadway takes over, they're overproduced. You know, Todd Rundgren intentionally overproduced Bad Out of Hell. He said the goal was to make everything louder than everything else. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, but by the time you get to Bad Out of Hell 2 and then 3 in 2006, at which point Meatloaf actually brings his music to Broadway. Right. I got no use for it. Well, him. and he still, you know, those, rec those records still sold. And there was something about that record that connected with people in a way that I, I still can't quite put my finger on but there's so something you were you were just a couple years too old about meatloaf yeah I, I saw him later on you know do on those sequel tours right yeah and the one thing that struck me about him was how sincere he was about what he was doing he was actually playing yeah. a role but he was throwing himself into it with such zeal that you couldn't help but enjoy it right oh yeah that's number one number two underrated actor yeah, I will, yeah, I will make yeah. a, a contention that Salt and Sea, one of my favorite movies of all time, yeah. Vince D'Onofrio yeah. and uh, Val Kilmer. He's great in great Fight Club. crime noir, yeah. but yeah. you know, yeah. there's there's a, a minor role for Meatloaf in that movie, and he plays a guy named Bo, right? Yeah. And I'm just going, wow, that's Meatloaf. He's, he could act. That, he he know, could he, act. He, he had a long string of film credits. So, and not not to mention with Eddie and you know uh, Rocky Horror, um, the guy had skills, and he was an incredibly entertaining interview. So yes. I give him lots of props for being yes. just an all-around, you know, it, this is a larger-than-life personality who carried over to many aspects of his life. Meatloaf, he's immortal in my book, Mr. Cod. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're all trapped in our apartments, our houses, because of the quarantine and COVID, and we're going to play a bunch of songs about getting away, going on vacation, finding some exotic island to camp out on whenever this is all over. And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast feed, where this week we have the mountain ghost John Darnielle talking about his new novel, Devil House. Good times, Greg. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to sound opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo, and our intern, Mary Bernthal. 
Our social media consultant is Katie Cott. 